Alrighty, so James 5 is where we're going to be this morning, and this is going to be one of those messages at the onset, you're like, well, this is just plain awkward. Um, I, I asked the question in the email yesterday, and please don't shout it out loud, because you'll embarrass all of us, but I want to ask you the question, how much money did you make this year? You can't ask that, I know, but I did. So what number did your mind go to? Well, that's awkward, I know. Where do you see what James says? You think what I'm doing is awkward. So, so how much money uh, did you waste this year? Do you have a budget? Do you, forget if you have a budget. Do you follow a budget? Okay, that one we can raise our hands for. How many of us have a budget? Raise your hand. I'm no judging, no judging, okay? And if you have a budget and you don't follow it, keep your hand up. My hand's up. Um, I would like to say out loud right now that the curse of the American society is, in fact, Starbucks Network. Um, my budget, that seems to be my buster right there. That, uh, please understand this. This is not as awkward or uncomfortable as it may seem at first. Now, if I was to follow through all the questions I just asked, that certainly would be. But what James is doing is he's talking to people. And at the very beginning, James 5, 1, he says this. Come now, you rich people... Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. What James is doing right at the onset is he's saying, for those of you that this applies to, what I want you to do is repent. Repent. Now, I'm telling you, and I'll be very honest, I would love to have to repent for being rich. Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Um, but that's not what James is actually saying. So let me say some things at the very beginning just to kind of take some of the pressure off. Because really, it's not an, an, an evaluation on how much money you have. That's really not the point. The point is, do you know where it came from, and what are you doing with it? That's what James is going to dive into here. The first things first. Being wealthy, having more money than other people, being rich, is not a sin. You heard that, right? That is not sin. What you do with it is what matters. We see in Scripture a number of times... Um, the Bible talks specifically about our finances, about our money. He says in Ecclesiastes 5, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. That is, is futile. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, that if you fall in love with money and that becomes your purpose, your goal, your all in all, you are never going to be satisfied. And then, then Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money. The love of money. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. So the question James is asking all of us this morning is, how do you view money, possessions, and bank accounts? Or better, how is your relationship with wealth? <laughs> Which leads 90% of us in the room to be like, what wealth? That's a, that's a big assumption there, bud. Well, actually, historically speaking, if you make five figures... Not six, five. So just to help you with that, that's $10,000 or more. You're among the wealthiest people in all of history. Globally speaking, if you're a family of five who's living just above the poverty line here in America, which would be $35,000 a year as a family of five, you are actually almost 12 times more wealthy than the worldwide average of income. If you are making that $35,000 as a family of five, you are actually in the top 
1% of income earners in the entire world. Now, some of you are sitting there already doing your accounting gymnastics and saying, but the cost of living and supply and demand, and if you look at history, and, right? I mean, come on. That's the little lawyer being like, we can't be guilty. Okay, I understand. Wealth looks different to different people in different places, so let me simplify it for you. How many of you this week had to take the garbage out? Raise your hand, please. Guess what? You know how blessed you are to have garbage to take out? I was just reading this morning, 1988, in India, uh, this company came in and spent a bazillion dollars building this energy uh, company. And what they were going to do is they were going to take the garbage from the people in India, they were going to burn it, and they hoped to produce all of this electricity for the people living in India. The problem was this. When they went to, to actually evaluate how much energy they were producing, their numbers were way off, and they couldn't figure out why they weren't producing this exorbitant amount of energy that they expected to be producing. And the problem was because people didn't throw things away. They found ways to use them. It's like my wife and I, well, that's not true. My wife <laughs> likes going to thrift stores. I do not, but she does. And one of the things that we've experienced, I go with her because I love her. I love her in the thrift store. She loves the thrift store, and I just happen to be around, so that's cool. Um, but one of the things that we've noticed in different thrift stores is you can tell what type of area you are shopping in based on what is available in the thrift store. If you are in an affluent area, you are finding things like that are worth a gazillion dollars and have been worn once and somebody just got rid of it because, well, I don't really need that. But if you go to a, a, a less affluent area, what you find is the pickings are pretty slim because people who don't have as much wealth find ways to reuse things and recycle things. And what James is saying to us is that you and I need to understand the difference, not between being poor and being rich, but we need to understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. Ownership says, I deserve what I have. I worked hard for it. This is mine. I'm the point. Have you heard that before? That seems to be James. Maybe it's me that needs to learn the lesson. I don't know. Um, when you think you own something, it actually can make you difficult to get along with. I don't, I don't know if you recognize this or not. Maybe... I'll use this example. You, uh, you, you normally drive a, a 1989 Chevette. Hot rod, by the way. Oh, yeah. You drive that thing around. I mean, it has three doors that match. One door, it's a bonus color. The hood, a completely different color. Uh, the exhaust hasn't been attached for almost six months. You, you've got no hubcaps, and you've got the donut wheel on one. You pull into Walmart... And you're parking as close to Walmart as you can get, right? Now, purchase your first brand new car. Shiny. Zero miles. Not a dent, not a scratch. Everything matches. The windows even go all the way down. You're not parking as close to Walmart as you can get. You're one of those people that parks all the way in the back corner where there's no chance some little kid's going to open his door and ding your door. There's no chance a shopping cart's going to go rogue and smack into your bumper. 
Why? Because it's mine, and I want to I take care of it. I want to keep an eye on it. I want to watch it. And the problem is, when you think something is yours, you can become so obsessive over it that you disrespect and treat other people lesser than, which we'll get to in a second. That's ownership. But the reality is what James is calling us to is stewardship. What stewardship is, is it's something that produces this humble attitude that confesses that everything you have comes from his hand. And everything you have isn't given to you just to enjoy. Although, please don't hear me say this. If God has given you a gift, enjoy it. Moms, dads, you understand what that's like on Christmas morning. You buy this gift, you give it to them, and the kid's like, that's fine, whatever. I'll play with it later. No, it's Christmas. You play with it now, and you'll have fun. Right? God has given you gifts, and it's unspeakable gifts. And it's not always financial gifts. It's often relational gifts. Man, enjoy those. Bathe in those. Celebrate those. But understand, every gift that he has given you, every, matter, every gift of time, every gift of talent, every gift of treasure has been given to you so that you would be a good steward of it. You are the mail, sorry, the postal carrier. You're not the mailman anymore. 2023, you are the postal carrier. And you're carrying mail. That mail ain't yours. You have a job. Your responsibility is to take it from the sender to the receiver. That is what your job is with every good gift that God has given you. So how are you using the wealth, the time, the talent, the treasure that God has given to you? Or how are you not using it? James is going to give us three different characters to help us understand what we should avoid. And, and, and I think we'll, we'll be familiar with each of the characters. Verse 2. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire you have stored up treasure in the last days so our first character here is the hoarder i'll explain who that is in a minute <laughs> okay i'll do it now so modern television we're all familiar with that wonderful show hoarders right i cannot watch it it, it, it's, I can't watch it. It's not a modern phenomenon. In fact, this dude right here on the screen, his name is Homer Langley. Love the name. Homer, not Homer Langley, I'm sorry, Homer Collier. His brother is Langley Collier. These were two boys who were born in the late 1800s. They lived in Manhattan. They grew up in a brownstone that they inherited when their mom passed away. They lived in the brownstone without, without any obvious things going on for about four years. Um, however, what ended up happening was they noticed that the neighborhood was changing and they wanted to protect themselves. So they shut themselves out from the world. When they were asked why they chose to shut themselves out from the world, Langley Collier said, we just don't want to be bothered. Can I get an amen? I mean, if you can empathize with somebody, that brother right there, you can, I just don't want to be bothered. However, he went, they went a little overboard. They put iron grates on all the windows. They boarded up all the windows. They would only leave the house at night. Langley used to go out, and uh, after his brother Homer, who's on the screen there, uh, ended up losing his sight, Langley would go out in the middle of the night, and he would collect newspapers. Newspapers upon newspapers upon newspapers. And the reason when asked that he was doing it was so that when Homer received his sight back again, he could catch up on the news. It got so bad that Langley had to use his engineering skills to organize all of the items inside the home. And then they got so suspicious that he went back through the house and began to create a maze of boxes, 
a complicated tunnel system that was consisting of junk and trash rigged with trip wires, so if anybody invaded their house, they would be crushed. Homer and Langley created nests within all the stuff and just kind of hunkered down and lived there. Um, <laughs> a bunch of neighbors were trying to peek in their windows. This was in 1942. A bunch of neighbors, <laughs> this is awesome, uh, went to a neighbor, neighbor house, went up into the second floor and tried to peek into the windows of the Collier home, and uh, the way they fixed that was Langley purchased the next door house and then burned it down. Um, to go back to his previous quote, I don't want to be bothered. <laughs> so there you go. Um, in November of 1942, the bank began eviction procedures, sent a cleanup crew to the home. <laughs> And when the police, they got there, they, they couldn't get in, so they called the police. The police got there. They broke in the front door but couldn't go anywhere past the foyer because, and I quote, there was a sheer wall of junk piled from floor to ceiling. So then they decided, well, let's go through the top door. So they went through the top, or the top window. They went through the top window, and they couldn't move there either. So they shouted out to Langley Collier, we're here, we're closing on the house, and we will take you to jail if we need to. Without comment, Langley made out a check for $6,700, which in today's equivalency is $120,000, and paid off the mortgage in a single payment. So they left. Fast forward five years. The police receive a phone call. There's, somebody's died at the Collier home. So the police come, and again, they can't get into the house, and so they spend a day trying to find ways to, to, to get into, into this house. There's no doorbell, there's no telephone, all of the windows are protected by that iron grate, and so when the patrolman finally breaks in through the window in the second story, behind that window, what he finds are packages, newspaper bundles, emper, em, emper, empty cardboard boxes lashed together with rope, a frame of a baby carriage, a rake, an old umbrella, a grand piano, the chassis of a Ford vehicle. And finally, after five hours of digging, the seven police officers finally found Homer Collier's body, in fact, dead. So what the police thought was, I, we get it. Langley killed his brother and took off because he's not in the house. So they continued to look and continued to look and continued to look. They couldn't find him. And so they're like, hey, Langley must have made for the hills, right? And so they bring Homer out. They, they unpack all the stuff on the first floor. I want to get this exactly right because I don't want to exaggerate it. I do have that tendency. I know that all surprises you. On the ground floor of the brownstone, the police removed more than 19 tons of garbage. 19 tons. Now, they were convinced that Langley was on the run and Homer here was dead. Here's a, here's a picture of the, the home there. You can kind of stacks upon stacks. Well, what ends up happening is Homer's funeral comes and goes a week and a half later and Langley doesn't show up at the funeral. So now they think uh, something horrible must have happened to Langley. Fast forward two weeks as they continue to dig through the stuff, something in fact did happen to Langley. All of his engineering and creating the booby traps that he had done, he had fallen victim to his own trap. It took them three weeks to find him underneath all of the stuff. Hey, you know how much garbage they pulled out of the Collier home in downtown Manhattan? I mean, I gave you that number. What was that number again? 19 tons, is that right? Yeah, that's the first floor. 140 tons. All 
All right, I don't think any of you are like that. But what James is painting the picture of here is massive waste, unthinkable waste, ridiculous waste, a nonsensical waste. He says, you, you, you hoard all of this stuff, and what ends up happening is sitting in the corner is the most luxurious food, and it's not eaten. It's the finest wine. It has not been drunk. It's the fanciest clothing. The tags are still on it, and the moths are starting to eat through it. You have so much, you're never going to get around to using it. And when you don't use things, they corrode, they rust. And James is saying, listen, if you're using your wealth, making it do good, making a difference in the lives of people, that's great. But when you just store up for the sake of storing up, you're not doing yourself, you're not doing others, you're not doing the kingdom any good. James talks about the, the hoarder. Verse 4. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. Who does he talk about next? He talks about the miser. I think you might be familiar with this character. Charles Dickens laid out a description of him. His name is Ebenezer Scrooge. And in his writing, Charles Dickens says, Scrooge is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as a flint, secret, self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Here's this fella in, in fiction who, despite having an incredible amount of personal wealth, underpays his clerk, Mr. Cratchit, he hounds those people who owe him money relentlessly, and he lives as cheap as he possibly can, and he lives without joy. What's interesting is, as you understand Scripture and read Scripture, this description of the miser, the one who withholds pay, what's happening is this person is, is breaking a very clear law of the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19 says this, Don't oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. The idea is the end of the day, you pay them. The end of the day, you pay them. You don't go home with what you owe them. Deuteronomy actually talks about this as well. I'll skip down into the middle there. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and he depends on them. So, so a day's wages is everything for those laboring in the field. Working from paycheck to paycheck is a whole different concept when it comes to these folks. They can't put food on the table if you don't give them what you owe them at the end of their workday. Listen, every single one of us in this room, if we're not careful, our own personal wealth can lead us to be careless, can lead us to be insensitive towards people who work for you or who serve you. So do you owe someone something? And make it good now. Did you cheat somebody out of something? Fix it. Now, now maybe, maybe your personal application can't be how you pay people, right? Because I don't pay anybody. So, so let me give you two um, applications. The first one is this. Tipping. It's become a joke, I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody thinks they deserve a tip. However, if you go to an establishment and you sit down and you give somebody a tip, you had better not leave a gospel tract unless you are generous. One of the most disrespectful things that I've ever seen is like, Here's a, here, let me tell you about real wealth. Here's Jesus. That's your tip. It's a good thing you gave it to him after they served your food. We should be a generous people who tip incredibly generously. 
We should have our eyes open to the needs of people around us and find ways to encourage other people. Here's one. <laughs> this one's going to make you all sorts of uncomfortable. Ready? All right. <clears throat> Halloween. It's June. I know. That's why it's safe to talk about right now. Now, when you talk about Halloween in church, nine times out of ten, the pastor's like, it's Satan's holiday. Um, for 99.9999999% of people, Halloween is about candy. Yeah? So for you, child of God, what Halloween needs to be is about your community, about your neighbors. You need to wake up and realize that on that night, you are being given an opportunity unlike any other opportunity the rest of the year. Your neighbors are coming over and they expect to have a conversation with you. And so let me just be really clear. If they know you're a believer, don't you dare hand out cheap candy. Circus peanuts? <laughs> we will discipline you out of this place. No, <laughs> Apples? Well, you know, candy's bad for you. Have you read Snow White? All right, there you go. <laughs> Not the point, but the point, right? <laughs> Don't be miserly with what God has given to you. Be generous. That's what the child of God looks like. Verse 5 tells us the third person. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. This is one of my favorite characters in, in life. Her name is Baruka. I want it now! And Daddy just takes out the checkbook. She wants the goose that lays the golden egg, and she wants it now. Uh, so the idea is this. That James is saying, don't, don't live a life like that, where it's like, I want it, so I'm getting it. I want it, so I'm getting it. I want it, so I'm getting it. Like, listen, James is not saying don't enjoy the good things of this world. I've already said that, right? If God has given you an opportunity to enjoy a gift, you enjoy it to the fullest. That's what he's given it to you for. To not enjoy it to the fullest is a, is a slap in the face of God, and it's a picture of unthankfulness. No, if God has given you that gift, you enjoy it to the fullest, but you do not live a life of entitlement. A life of entitlement means you have the means to help. You have the means to help a lot of people. You have the means to help the poor. You have the means to help advance the kingdom, but you can't see past what you want in your own selfishness. So you ignore the actual needs of other people as you pursue your gold egg-laying goose. Again, I'm not saying don't enjoy the finer things. Enjoy, if you have the opportunity to, enjoy them. I was poking around just trying to see some of the more ridiculous things online. I found water that has gold and silver in it. You have to raise a pinky when you drink it for sure. But you can find some pretty fine, exquisite things out there. You know what? If it's within your means and you have the opportunity to enjoy it and somebody's like, you should drink this gold or silver, hey, let me know how that goes. I'll visit you in the hospital, I think. I'm not sure how that's going to go. But we can become completely blinded and start to think that the luxuries are actually necessities. And that's where we get into trouble. That's why James is talking here and he's saying, listen, you... You say you have faith. Okay. So not a lot of people carry a checkbook anymore, so take out your register, your account history, your checkbook, whatever it might be for you. You take that out, you open it up for Jesus to look at. What are you doing with what Jesus has given you? 
James is asking you, do you have a healthy relationship with possessions? Do you have a healthy relationship with wealth? Do you have a healthy relationship with money? Again, possession of wealth is not evil, but abusing that wealth by selfish living and harming those dependent on you is. So let me give you some applications, okay? Um, First one is this. (laughs) Particularly for those of you, even though I said I wasn't judging you, (laughs) that didn't raise your hand about having a budget. Man, take a financial class. Take a class on finances. It'll give you a more round underst- uh, rounded understanding of, of, of what your finances are for, what it looks like through Scripture. We are doing one again this fall here at Uniontown. We'll sign up for that at the end of September and make much about that. But, but get into a financial class. Grow in your financial wisdom. I think the second thing you need to do, application, is live a life that's marked by generosity. Um, yes. And I, and I said in my email I wasn't going to talk about the big, but let me, let me say this real quick. Yes, yes, give to your local church. Yes. We have boxes in the back. You can give online. You, you, we have an incredibly generous church, and I am grateful and thankful for you. In fact, last fiscal year, we'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks, but last fiscal year, we made our income budget because of your faithful and generous giving, which is crazy. So, so yes, give to your local church. But here's another practice I want to challenge you to. You ready? Set something aside to give away each week. It doesn't have to be much. You know, five bucks, ten bucks. But just set something aside so that you can be a blessing to somebody else this week. You know, you know what it does when you do that? It opens people's eyes because that's unusual in our culture today. We live in an ownership culture where it's all mine and you better dance, monkey, and then maybe I'll give it to you. And the reality is, no, it's God's, and I'm supposed to steward it well. So set aside just a little bit, and every week use that in an unexpected way sometimes to bless somebody else. That was the Grace Bomb series we did back in January. Find ways to do that. And finally, another application is to grow in contentment by understanding what you have to be thankful for. Everything you have is from him. Here, let me, let me, let me back out and give you the bigger picture, because that's why you're here. James is a tough book to preach, by the way, because it's almost all application. So let me go back and tell you why James is making this application. You know why James is making this application about your wealth and about how we should be a generous people and not be a hoarder's people, not be a, a miserly people, not be, a, a, um, what was that last one, indulgent people? Because the very gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in generosity. That's what I think verse 6 is talking about. Look at verse 6. It's one of the more difficult verses to understand in the book of James, but I but I think this is what he's saying. He says in verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. If you translate that literally, so just word for word, Greek to English, it says, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous one, he doesn't condemn you. He doesn't condemn you. It's not that he didn't condemn you, not that he couldn't condemn you, but that he chose not to condemn you. See, what happens when you hoard the gifts that God has given you or you become a miser, you become indulgent, is you have forgotten the one who didn't resist you. You have forgotten the one who died for you. You have forgotten what he has done for you. There's not a single person in this room who who was born placing their confidence in Jesus Christ. None of us were righteous. We were all born in, in sin. And when God looked down and saw us making a mess of everything he had given to us, he responds with generosity, and he gives us his son to absorb our deserved wrath. We're, 
We are kindly reminded that we are born sinners every day when we look at our youngest of children, when they do things that nobody ever taught them to do that are rampant sin. Have you ever been sitting next to a little kid? I mean, the answer is yes, but okay. So you sit next to a little kid, and, and they're getting a little, little, little fidgety, and you're like, okay, okay, I want this conversation to continue. So you reach in your pocket, and you pull something out, like your keys, usually it's keys, and you give them their keys, and they're like, it's like the greatest gift ever, which should make every parent rethink Christmas again, right? They're like, keys, I love keys, keys are great, okay? So they play with the keys, play with the keys, and you're like, all right, little dude, I gotta go, give me the keys. No, mine! Buddy, I, I gotta go. Uh, mine! Well, they're not yours. <laughs> I don't think that's the argument you need to have in that moment, by the way. Actually, I purchased it. No, you don't do that, okay? <laughs> mine. Some of us are... We're not kids anymore. We still act like it when it comes to our stuff, don't we? God wants the keys, and, and we respond just like the kid. Mine! It's mine! You can't have it! You can't have it. And that's, that's historically our relationship with God. From the beginning of our lives to the time we breathe our last, we are constantly in rebellion against God. And while we were mistreating him like that, while we were claiming for ourselves what is actually his, while we're fighting God for control, in generosity, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not see his status as, or place as something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself for us. And, and he came in human flesh. And he lived the perfect life and then died the death that we should have died. It gives us the picture of the hero dying for the villain. It, it's the, the picture of, of the judge stepping off of the bench, pleading guilty on behalf of the criminal, and says, punish me instead of him. It's the picture of the rescuer pushing you out of the way as the wrath of God falls on him instead of on you. However you need to see it, that's what Jesus Christ did for you. And if that's not generous, I don't know what is. What kind of love is that? That's the love that Jesus had for us while we were yet sinners. How should we respond? Well, first, very simply, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then by all means, today is the day of salvation. We talked about it last week. What is your life? It's just a... Poof, you don't know how long you're going to be around. You, don't, you can't be guaranteed of tomorrow. You can't be guaranteed of the next half an hour. You can't be guaranteed of next week. So, so today, as you sit here, if you understand that you're a sinner and you're lost in your sins, you're unable to do anything about your standing between you and God because you are a sinner, but that Jesus Christ came to die for you in your place, and that if you put your trust in him and count on his shed blood for the payment of your sins, and you confess with your mouth, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior, Guess what? You get to experience the generosity of God today. And so as we close our time and we sing, I'm going to invite you to go to the back corner to the prayer team or, or even in the quietness of your seat, I'm going to invite you to pray right there and ask Jesus to be your Savior. But what about those of you who know Jesus? How about those of you who have been saved for such a long time? <laughs> Man, cultivate gratitude and stare at the cross. It's a beautiful song, an old hymn came to mind as I was walking in here this morning. Um, it's when I survey the wondrous cross. And the song goes through and 
talks about the glorious salvation that we can experience in Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, the glorious salvation you have experienced in Jesus Christ. And the last verse says this. We're the whole realm of nature mine. If everything was mine, that's a present that is way too small. The love that God has shown me is so amazing, so divine. I need to give him everything, my soul, my life, my all. Are you an owner or are you a steward? And if Jesus was to look into your checkbook, would he then look you in the eye and say, well done? If not, Today is the day to change it. Father, thank you for your grace. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am one guilty sinner speaking to other guilty sinners. I know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that, that apart from your mercy and your grace, that I couldn't stand here. So Father, thank you for that incredible mercy. And Lord, I ask that you would be with every single one of us as we wrestle with how we treat our belongings, our possessions. May we understand what it is that you've told us. It's not just about the thing. It's about our heart's attitude towards you. So Lord, may we see each and every gift you've given to us as a good and perfect gift, and may we be quick to give you the praise and quick to be generous with it. I thank you for our brothers and sisters who are sitting in this room. There are many who come to mind who are some of the most generous people I've ever met. God, I pray that you would richly reward them with your presence today. For those of us that need to grow in this area, may we be faithful stewards. Now, Lord, I, I thank you that everything we have comes from your hand. May we live like it. In the matchless name of Christ, I pray. Amen.